Hello and welcome to the Eco Business Podcast. I'm Robin Hicks. On today's show, we're going to talk about how to get the wheels of the circular economy spinning again after a devilishly difficult year. In 2020, the coronavirus pandemic led to a resurgence in consumption of single-use plastic and crippled already strained systems for collecting, processing and recycling plastic. Is there anything that can be done to revive the ailing circular economy in Asia? Joining today's podcast is Rob Kaplan, the chief executive of Circulate Capital, an investment firm that has a fund of $100 million to pump into companies that advance the circular economy and limit the flow of plastic waste into the ocean. Circulate Capital has, despite tumultuous market conditions, invested in a number of recycling companies in South and Southeast Asia in recent months. Welcome to the podcast, Rob Kaplan. Well, thanks, Robin. It's great to be here. So, yeah, thanks again so much for joining us on the first Eco Business Podcast of 2021. Now, looking back briefly to 2020, Rob, now um, it's pretty much a car crash year for the circular economy, um, pardon the phrase, but um, in some instances, it very much went into reverse. You know, we saw the closure of many recycling businesses and there's a real strain on the whole system of recycling plastic and keeping plastic out of the oceans. Um, From your perspective, Rob, um, what were the challenges most keenly felt by the circular economy um, in Asia in 2020? Yeah, Um, it was a car crash year, not just for the circular economy, but for pretty much every economy. Um, You know, for, for the circular economy, I think a fundamental component to it is logistics. Uh, And um, while consumption has increased over the last year, global supply chains have been severely disrupted uh, by all the lockdowns and restrictions and everything that everyone was doing to come and is still doing to combat the pandemic. But uh, when the circular economy requires or or depends on uh, the flow of goods uh, so that you can take stuff back and, and reuse it or recycle it, that has caused a, a massive gap in the value chain. Um, in, in the world that I live in mostly, which is plastics and circularity around plastics, uh, you know, in, for example, we saw in Thailand, plastic waste rose by 15% in April, which is just at the beginning. And we can only imagine what it is today. And we've seen double, triple that type of estimates for, for many cities in, in Mumbai and in India. So um, while, uh, and so at the same time, while all these plastic value chains are being disrupted, then you've got recycling services not being classified as essential. And so they've been uh, unable to operate. Uh, but for us, I, I think we're at a crossroads. Um, the time we feel is, is now to invest in the recycling and circular economy value chains because we can help build back stronger and more resilient value chains uh, for the future. Indeed, you mentioned um, increases in um, disposable plastic use. I think here in Singapore, where we're talking from um, disposable plastic use increased by about 10%, which, and that figure I think sounds a bit conservative. It feels like a lot more. Um, now, I want to ask you about Circulate Capital's investments. Now, you guys have very boldly made a number of investments in South and Southeast Asia. Um, specifically India, uh, Indonesia, correct me if I'm wrong if I've missed out any. Um, Now, given the low price of virgin plastic 
and the fall off in demand of recycled plastic. How have you made these investments work? Because from where I'm sitting, it seems like it'd be a real struggle to make these investments work. Yeah. Well, I think one thing you have to remember is that waste is a local business first and an international trade second. And so it's, you have to be cautious about generalizing market trends, um, about the price of virgin plastic globally uh, or demand for recycled material because so much varies from market to market. Um, and yeah, we have seen a lot of disruption in some of the domestic markets like uh, we were talking about, but we've also seen some pickup. Um, and uh, you know, we may talk about this later, but right now Europe has an insatiable demand for recycled plastics these days. And that's largely in due, due to regulatory distortions, but you know, they are continuing to import as much as they can. Um, and a lot of that's being driven by the multinational corporates. Uh, our corp you know, for our fund, the Circulate Capital Ocean Fund, we manage capital for PepsiCo, Coke, Procter & Gamble, Unilever, Chanel, Danone, Dow, and CP Chem. And they're sticking with their commitments. And so while we've seen domestic demand drop off in many of these markets, um, we've also seen that, that international or multinational demand increase. Um, and uh, at the end of the day, you know, waste and recycling is, is pretty much a recession-proof industry. You know, there's always waste being generated and someone's got to do something with it. Uh, and, you know, if you can make money doing it, even the better. And so there's sort of a, a baseline of activity that we're able to benefit from. That's really good to hear. Um, speaking to a couple of recyclers in Indonesia recently, um, it didn't sound as if all multinationals with sustainability commitments and commitments to use more recycled plastic in their pla uh, products and packaging are sticking to their commitments, um, to be honest. And it's heartening mm -hmm. to hear that your partners um, are doing so. Um, now, yeah, specifically can ask about um, how the investments you guys have made are faring at the moment, Rob. How, how tough is it for them? Because um, a report by GA Circular that came out, I'm sure you read it um, relatively, re it's August last year, said that 40% yeah. of recyclers in South and Southeast Asia face bankruptcy or, or severe financial strain. Yeah. It's tough out well, there. I yeah. I am familiar with that because yeah. we actually commissioned that study. Right, of course. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Forgive me. Um, so you commissioned that study. So how specifically are the investments that you've made? How are they doing? Yeah. Um, everybody's stable. Uh, I think when you have this type of massive disruption, and we talked about the lockdowns preventing activity, we talked about international trade being disrupted, and you know, sometimes it's hard to even get a container. Uh, to be able to ship your product. And even though you have customers, you can't meet, meet their demand because you can't get the logistics to work. Um, you start to have a lot of pain in the system. And what I mean by that is, you know, companies are going to go out of business uh, and it's only the, the strongest that will survive. Uh, it's, a, it's Darwinian in some ways, uh, but the ones who are the most resilient, who are the most diversified, who have the strongest relationships with their customers, um, they uh, will will continue to survive and thrive as the as their competitors who you know have weaker contracts or are over dependent on singular customers um, and different things are over dependent on suppliers for feedstock. Um, they'll go out of business, and that ends up creating a stronger system uh, and drives consolidation, which, as you know, in Indonesia and, and most of Southeast Asia, one of the biggest challenges we have is fragmentation. 
Um, so we actually expect the systems to come out stronger. And uh, for sure, many of our portfolio companies are in a bit of a holding pattern and trying to make sure that we are preparing ourselves for that potential growth in the next six to 12 months. Right. So you mentioned a, a couple of traits there for um, what recyclers need to, to survive the pandemic and continue growth. Um, what are some of the other traits that you are looking for as an investor um, in a recycling business, Rob? Um, there are four key risk or three key risk areas that we look at in a recycling business. Um, the first, it's feedstock operations and offtake. So, you know, what's the strength of your supply chain and feedstock? Can you have, do you have access to the material you need and can you get more? And, and why do we believe that to be true? And how do you manage your relationships with your suppliers and how, how resilient are those relationships? Is it purely transactional or is there mutual dependency? And then, you know, operationally is probably the easiest part, which is, can you run your factory? Um, and why do we believe that to be the case? And then the offtake side is the relationship with the customers. Um, are you able to produce a quality consistent enough to get into a multinational supply chain or do you, can you get there? And what will it take for you to get there? And so that's a big part of our investment is investment strategy is to identify those startups and SMEs that are already operating. Most of them are already profitable today. Um, but they need some capital to really get to that next level and, and meet the international standards. Okay. Now there's an urgent need for more capital to be injected into, into waste collection, recovery, recycling in, in this region, right? I think that's mm -hmm. fairly well established. In your mm -hmm. view, what's stopping the inflow of capital? Where are the blockages that, that need to be removed? Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I, you know, we've been able to raise over $100 million US for this strategy, but we all know it's going to take many, many billions, if not trillions of dollars to really build the infrastructure at scale to solve the ocean plastic crisis for good and, and develop a circular economy. Um, but the only folks who can bring that type of capital to the solutions here are large scale infrastructure investors, sovereign wealth funds, pension funds, the folks who are financing the future of infrastructure in Asia. And right now they're sitting on the sidelines. Um, they don't allocate capital to waste and recycling or the circular economy. They instead allocated it to bridges and roads and ports. And so we feel a big part of our strategy is not just to, for every dollar we invest, to uh, prevent plastic pollution, but also to catalyze capital. And the only way we're going to get these guys in to this marketplace is if they see other people making money, right? So um, our fund is uh, not just trying to fight plastic pollution, but also demonstrate that this is an investable sector and crowd more capital in. Right, that led very well to my next question, which is about how these systems, which haven't traditionally been invested in, be made more appealing to investors. And I guess you mentioned there, it's case studies of profitable recycling businesses, right? Anything else that can draw this sort of capital into the market that we need? Yeah, well, I push on, I, I build on what you're saying a little bit. It's not just case studies, but it's actually like investment products. So most large-scale investors are participating in funds, fund of funds, private equity funds, venture, um, and you know large projects. And so what we need to be able to show is a track record of how investing in this sector can deliver that competitive IRR uh, in the 20, 
plus percent range. But that's not the only thing. The, the second, you know, another piece is, um, is, is pipeline. So you, if you're trying to allocate $100 million, you actually want to see, uh, you know, a billion dollars worth of opportunity um, because you only want to invest in the top 10%. You don't want to invest, if there's $100 million, you don't want to invest in all of it because you know there's going to be some lousy deals in there. Uh, so we really need to develop the pipeline and, and create more investment opportunities, supplant, start planting those seeds today so that can start, they can start to grow into trees uh, over the next several years as more capital is preparing to enter the space. Now, you mentioned um, types of investors that are sitting on the sidelines at the moment, um, public funds and other types of funds. Now, you work with big um, consumer-facing companies such as um, PepsiCo, Unilever, correct me if I'm wrong on those names. Um, some, yep. some would push back and say, yes, brand owners are investing more in recycled plastic and the circular economy, but still not enough. Um, what's your take on the level of commitment from um, the consumer-facing brands in um, recycled plastic at the moment, Rob? Yeah, I, I think uh, it's a fair challenge. Um, and I think uh, there could always be more investment. Uh, you know, as uh, we were talking about, there's many billions that need to flow into the sector. And um, I think, you know, it's unlikely to ex assume that consumer brands are gonna bring billions of dollars when they're just a multi-billion dollar company. Right, you know that's pretty much the entire business. So we have to think about other sources of capital in addition to that. Um, but you know, I think at the end of the day, like the consumer brands, they don't really know that much about recycling and waste management. If there's one thing I would uh, point out is, you know, Coke and Pepsi and Procter and Unilever probably shouldn't be in the recycling industry in the Philippines or Thailand. Right, they don't know that much that business that well. It's really better suited to um, suppliers, right? To these SMEs, these recycling companies that have been operating there already and are, are local businesses, and that's where the local jobs come from. Um, I think the brands have a really incredible and incredibly important roles to play um, in their part of the value chain. So if you think about it as a circle, right? They're they're designing and making products. They're sourcing material, so they have a huge role to play in designing for circularity and procuring and creating demand for recycled content. And then they also have to sell those products. So they have much more ability to influence the next stage on the circle, which is you know, retailers and consumers who are actually buying stuff um, and delivering that product to them in a way that could be circular or, or refillable or reusable or things like that. But the areas that they're very far removed from are the infrastructure. They need that supply chain to exist but that's why they need funds and infrastructure investors to come in and help build those systems. Indeed. Mind you, again, pushing back a little bit, you could, uh, you could argue that these companies we're talking about, for example, not picky on them, but say Unilever, um, they're mm -hmm. a multi-billion dollar operation. And they have indeed tried to um, buy into the infrastructure piece, for example, in Indonesia. They've tried to, because of pressure about single-use plastic um, sachet pollution, they've tried to get into the recycling game there in Surabaya with a plant, which I understand um, hasn't quite worked out just because they don't have the expertise and they haven't managed to get sufficient feedstock to make that recycling plant work. But um, yeah, it is interesting, isn't it? That but isn't that my point, Robin, yeah. that 
you know, that's way far outside their realm of expertise in business. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, I think that could, the, those projects need to develop and grow. Um, the question is, what's the right role for consumer brands and where can they make the most value add? And I would argue operating recycling facilities probably isn't the most, the highest value add role for them to play when it compared to designing their products in a way for circularity and delivering it in a way to consumers that resonate with them um, through their very powerful brands. That's where I'd ask them to spend their time. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, good point. And the the recycling plant that I meant I was talking about in Indonesia has been at pilot stage since 2017, I believe it is. So they just haven't managed yeah. to get that off the ground. Now, um, so Rob, the circular economy is a complex system that needs obviously a number of different pieces, different parts moving together at the same time. Um, besides the money, the capital, which is a massive piece, obviously, what else do you see as some of the missing pieces that need to be um, brought together to make the, the circular economy um, work again in Asia? Yeah, I think uh, um, the two other areas in addition to capital that we think a lot about are um, innovation and policy. So, uh, you know, we, we, a lot of the research has found that, you know, with existing technology, we can get maybe 50% of the way there in terms of ocean plastic prevention and delivering the circular economy. Um, there really needs to be a step change in technology for recycling across the board that can get to that second, get that six and 50% um, achieved. And then every investment, every project, all of us live within policy frameworks and regulatory environments. And those policies can either incentivize or uh, investment in success, or they can hinder it. And so it's, it's a ever present component of, of enabling the circular economy. Indeed, going back to the, the money piece a, a little bit and ways of, of getting more capital into the system, right? Um, I want to ask you a bit about uh, something we wrote about recently, the idea of a plastic tax. Now, the European Union has, I think just this month, started to roll out a tax on non-recycled packaging. Now, mm -hmm. some have suggested that some form of plastic tax is needed to drive the uptake of recycled plastic here in Asia. Um, what's your view on that? Do you have a view on that, Rob? Yeah, um, and I, I saw that article, so thank you for, for bringing that forward. Um, I, you know, I think it um, depends on the country and depends on the market, right? So it's hard to say that it would make sense across all of Asia. Um, plastic tax uh, can't hurt. It will definitely create activity and, and it is a, um, a way to raise the floor because you will um, have the supply chain operating to uh, you know, minimize how much taxes they have to pay, right? And that becomes a pretty simple economic equation. Um, I'm, so I think it would create a significant impact. Um, I personally am more excited about policies that create incentives rather than penalties. I'd like to see, you know, uh, maybe tax holidays for the folks who are using more recycled content to really raise it, to create an aspirational floor or as, aspirational ceiling rather than a, a raising floor. Um, but I think they're, they both have roles to play. 
Interesting point. Now, final question for you is about hope and how optimistic a person you are, Rob, right? I mean, I'm certainly, certainly at the moment from where I'm sitting, glass half empty. Um, when I think about plastic pollution in, in this part of the world, you know, the odds are stacked against us. There's more plastic production in the pipeline, more ocean pollution because of COVID. We can recycling on infrastructure. So personally, I'm not that hopeful. Um, how about you? I think it's hard to do this work and not be inherently optimistic <laughs> and hopeful. Uh, you know, I, I go back to some of the, the numbers and some of the dollars, right? And the research is pretty strong that if we can achieve it, a circular economy can generate trillions and trillions of additional economic output um, over the next uh, 10 years. Um, and Asia is uniquely positioned to be able to turn that from an aspiration into a reality. Um, and, uh, you know, there's one thing that Asia is really good at is, is growth and doing it in a way that um, uh, can take all these different connection points into account. Um, the, uh, in a linear economy, you know, trillions of dollars of materials are lost to landfill, lost to the ocean, lost to incineration. And, you know, we see here in Singapore, uh, that's not going to last forever, right? We're running out of landfill space. And that will cause more action um, and more activity to hopefully drive a lot of impact. And then, you know, the other point I'd make is um, ocean plastic, there's say 10 to 15 million tons of plastic that enter the ocean every year. That's, you know, not too much. Like that's a solvable problem. Um, it, it feels like it's hard to wrap your head around it, but we manage 10, you know, 10 million tons of waste on an annual basis in a lot of different contexts. So there's, there's a lot of opportunity to, to uh, really, really move the needle here. That's a great place to leave it on a positive note. Um, Rob Kaplan, CEO of Circulate Capital, thanks so much for joining the Eco Business Podcast. Thank you, Robin, and Happy New Year. This podcast was hosted by Eco Business, Asia's leading media company serving the region's sustainability community. Join the conversation by visiting eco-business.com, follow us on social media, or subscribe to our newsletter. Thanks for listening.